The actual debris field is massive. You can stand on one end of it and just see parts all around you. My husband likes to describe it as like the plane went through a cheese grater. In 1943, a B-17 bomber left Pendleton, Oregon for Grand Island, Nebraska for the first leg of its long trip to fight in Europe. Its last known radio transmission was near Powder River, Wyoming. And then it was gone. Despite all the searches for it, no one could find any of the ten missing servicemen on board or the plane itself. A year after its disappearance, the families of the missing men were able to collect the life insurance of their loved ones but the pilots and crew of the B-17 were simply listed as presumed dead. It wasn't until August of 1945, over two years after the disappearance, that debris of the plane was found high on a ridge on what today is called Bomber Mountain, near Buffalo, Wyoming. On this episode of That Doesn't Happen Every Day, we listen to one person's account of her climb up to the ridge where the remains of the plane still rest, as we hear the facts and myths of the missing B-17 that crashed on Bomber Mountain. Sylvia Bruner starts the story of her climb to the wreckage with her horse and her husband, Ben. The ride in was pretty easy. I think it's one of the gentler inclines. Uh, we had two mules and a horse. Ben had spotted a piece of the wreckage that turned out to be the stabilizer from the tail. Looking up at that shiny spot as we climbed, and then we made it to the top, that's when you really have this overview of just hundreds of pieces of wreckage. And it's kind of breathtaking because it really drives home um, just how intense the crash was. You see everything. Twisted metal, you see bundles of wire, cabling. The biggest pieces of the aircraft are that stabilizer from the tail and then kind of the top of the plane but it's not even the full top, it's just a part of it. There was a lot more wood than I realized used in those planes, like plywood. The most easily recognizable things are the engines. They broke off and they bounced off by themselves. I just felt really overwhelming sadness and um, I guess thoughtfulness. You know, I actually just kind of sat on a boulder for a long time and looked around me and thought about those guys that died. They were so young, and the older I get, the more I realize how young they were, and all of their family members, and for them to have been missing for two years, you know, just, I can't imagine what that felt like for them and for their families. Sylvia talks about how the plane was discovered in 1945. There was a group of men and some teenage boys in the Bighorns, and they were up there on a... Um, cattle roundup and they had noticed something I suspect they probably saw the tail stabilizer too because it is kind of the most visible thing from down below and so a couple of them went up and explored they found the wreckage they found the, some of the bodies and they realized it was military so they went back down told the rest of their party a couple of them went further down to a forest service station notified a ranger um, who then in turn notified the military. After soldiers and civilian volunteers removed the bodies from the crash site, what remained was the massive field of debris that was deemed unsalvageable, and a lot of rumors, myths, and misconceptions about what really happened that night on Bomber Mountain. Sylvia addresses the first thing she believes is not only untrue about what happened, but even hurtful. 
There's this myth that um, somebody survived the crash. You know, that myth has been perpetuated because somebody said that they had seen their body propped up against a rock with personal effects kind of spread around them, like family photos and letters. I too had heard that there was a survivor who was found sitting up with photos around his body. But Sylvia offers a more nuanced view as to why the body and its effects were like they were. The guys that were with the Cattle Association who, you know, climbed up to the site and they looked at it, one of the gentlemen I spoke to remembered somebody kind of moving things around, not trying to be disrespectful, but he was curious. He wanted to see if he could figure out who these guys were. This is now 1945. These guys have seen a lot in their lifetimes. They're also cattlemen. Like, they're used to dealing with life and death and kind of gross stuff. They might have moved a body, propped him up, pulled something out of a pocket to take a look at it. I think that's probably where that kernel of truth maybe started. Then it just turned into this myth. What Sylvia said makes sense. The first people on the scene were not the only people to see the crash site and the bodies. A second group of people were summoned to the site and arrived about three days after the discovery to remove the deceased service members. While some of the recovery team were military personnel, many of them were local civilian volunteers, not people trained to assess crash sites or forensic evidence. Some of the volunteers were even in their early teens. Any one of the recovery team members could have easily misread what they were seeing at the crash site and then talked about it with people down in town in Buffalo. Sylvia mentioned something else that points to the likelihood that it was a cowboy that had taken the things out of the servicemen's pockets. You're at an elevation of 12,000 feet in the snow and the wind and the sun and all of those elements. Nothing like a photograph or a letter is going to stay on a rock beside a body. It's going to blow away or be destroyed. If you've ever been to any part of Wyoming, you know how terrible the weather is. It's honestly a little surprising that photos or other lightweight small items like that would remain for just those brief few days between when the cattlemen discovered the site and when the rescue team arrived. But it is completely impossible for them to stay on that mountaintop for over two years after a rumored surviving crew member would have set them out before he died, leaving them at the mercy of the mountain's snow, rain, and wind. Doubts about a survivor also grow as Sylvia cites the official crash report. They noted that the crash was just absolutely catastrophic. And they were very specific in that nobody could have survived it. They were very specific in that every single body had been burnt. And the majority of them were dismembered. At least half of them were decapitated during the crash. It's awful to think about. But... What I think is more awful to think about, this myth that I mentioned is that um, somebody survived the crash and died alone, cold, injured, on top of this mountain in the middle of the night. I can see why the myth of a survivor was perpetuated. It honestly makes it more intriguing to talk about someone surviving a catastrophic wreck up on a mountain than the predictable outcome that everyone died there. However, Sylvia is very protective of the truth. She tells me why she's fought so hard to dispel that myth, even if it meant getting a little bit graphic about what happened to the men on board. It matters, and it really mattered to the family members of those men. And I didn't think about that myself until I was talking to um, one of the little brothers of one of the crew members. Who, he was 90 at the time I was talking to him. And he had come out to the area. He didn't get to climb to the crash site because he wasn't physically able. But I had sent him a bunch of my pictures that I had taken. 
he'd gotten the photos, checked them all out, and we had this really amazing phone conversation. And he asked me what my opinion was of that that theory. And he started crying. And he was explaining that, you know, for almost 70 years, um, it had bothered him because he had thought that what if... What if it was his brother? What if his brother had survived the crash? Um, how horrific is that to think about him being alone and dying in that manner? So, of course, I, you know, I start crying. Point <laughs> in my personal opinion of, like, look, you visit that crash site. There's no way anybody survived it. And then you back it up with all the evidence from the people in the know at that time. And it just, I really don't think that's what happened. But that drove home for me the importance of um, accuracy and thoughtfulness. Another one of the rumors spread about Bomber Mountain was that the plane was carrying gold for military payrolls. Well, it is true that many payrolls used gold in the 19th century. Were they still doing it in the 1940s? Also, if they were, would they give a brand new crew just out of training the task of shipping it? Sylvia denies that myth flat out. But she humors me by sharing an even bigger myth that came from the original myth that there might have been gold on the plane. There was a local old guy over the mountain who was kind of a hermit, but it seems like he was pretty harmless. People created this myth that he rushed up to the crash site before the investigative crew was there and like stole all the money. I mean, it's kind of laughable because I guarantee there was no money. That just makes no sense at all. But then, like, what a thing to saddle on this poor guy. Seems like by all other accounts, he just kind of lived his life maybe alone and like minding his own business, but he was probably a little bit strange. And so then people start making up stories. He never changed his lifestyle. So it's not, I mean, there's again, no evidence that he ever came into any kind of money, but that's, you know, that's what happens with events. People tend to Maybe start with a little bit of embellishment, and the next thing you know, it's really gone wild. We asked Sylvia why the plane crashed. I think it boiled down to inexperience, quite frankly. You know, these guys, we know from reading some of their letters home, I think it was Lewis Shepard had written his mom that he had like just started spending actual time in a plane in April. So he's got April, May, and a little bit of June in a plane. That's it. I really think it just boiled down to an experience and the speed with which the military was trying to get these guys over there. They were all brand new. They had been pushed through their training. We know that a couple of them had totally skipped whole phases of training. They were supposed to experience like three phases of training, but they completely passed over phase two. That had to be substantial. We asked Sylvia how something as big and obvious as an airplane remained missing for over two years, even after aerial searches, only to be found by some cowboys. If you're looking for a crash site, you're probably still kind of looking for an airplane. And this is not an airplane. This is just a debris field, and it's so large, and it's just in these massive boulders that even if you flew over the top of it, if you weren't really close and you weren't really looking, I think you could miss it quite easily. You know, the, this aircraft had the paint scheme for that time. It had an OD olive drab flat green top, and the bottom was aluminum, 
but it wasn't actually that shiny and it's still not really that shiny. Even when you get to it today and you see where the paint has worn off, um, you know, it's not like tin foil. So I could see how it would blend in with the rock field. Other factors that might have contributed to the plane not being found was the fact that there was likely snow on the mountain at the time of the crash, not to mention more snow in the following years. Another possibility that might have hindered finding the plane was that possibly search resources might have been hampered by a lack of personnel and equipment because of the war. In researching the subject, some visitors have described how boulders the size of refrigerators had been thrown on top of the wings and other parts of the plane. That also would have made it even harder to see from the air. I asked Sylvia why the debris of the plane remains where it does, and why it hasn't been cleaned up and replaced with a memorial or something like that. It's at a high enough elevation. It's in the wilderness. You can't get to it um, any way other than climbing. Like You've got to be on foot. So there isn't any good way logistically to get those pieces off the mountainside. And I think the Forest Service has also kind of looked at it like the site itself kind of is a monument or memorial to those guys. The Bomber Mountain site is protected by law of the day, but it wasn't uncommon years ago for people to take things from the site. Pieces of metal and even 50 caliber machine guns the plane was armed with have disappeared from the crash. Some of these items have fortunately been donated to the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, where Sylvia is the director. The U.S. Forest Service has signed a memorandum of understanding about the artifacts in their collection. So we have one case currently with items from the crash, and... It's got the frames of a pair of flight goggles. They're pretty badly mangled, but you can still tell what they were. And there's a radio control box. There's just some skin metal material from one of the wings. We have on display one machine gun and one propeller blade. We actually have two of each, but we don't have enough room to display everything all at once. They weigh about 125 pounds. The fact that somebody packed that off the mountain is kind of insane. And same with the propeller blades. Each blade, that's solid metal. Each blade is like 150 pounds. The, the one item that I think, I don't know, is like the most significant to me, it's actually this teeny tiny, it's like an inch, maybe an inch and a half wide. And it's a lapel pin. And it's, um, it's wings. It's the wings pin. There were four officers on board, the pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and bombardier, and all four of those guys would have had this pin on their lapel. And a hiker found it and brought it into us quite a few years ago. And it's just, it's so tiny. I don't even know how they were able to spot it, but, you know, and I think that's really one of the great things about why we history nerds love history, that human connection of like, oh yeah, this belonged to somebody. In closing, Sylvia asked me to please read the names of all of the men on board that died that night. I'm more than happy to oblige. Here's the list that she gave me. The pilot was William Ronigan, age 24, from Bronx, New York. The co-pilot was Anthony Toloda, age 22, from Houston, Texas. The navigator was Leonard Phillips, age 22, from Nebraska. The bombardier was Charles Supps III, age 22, from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The aircraft engineer was James Hines, age 25, from Oklahoma and then California. The radio operator was Ferguson Bell Jr., age 21. The assistant aircraft engineer was Vaughn Miller, age 24, from Surveyor, West Virginia. The assistant radio operator was Charles Newborn, who went by Junior, age 21, from Worcester, Oklahoma. 
The aircraft gunner was Jake Pinnock, age 22, from Texas. The assistant aircraft gunner was Lewis Shepard, age 22, from Florida. I'm very thankful for everyone that has served this country. I am also very thankful for Sylvia and all of her research and all of the things she was willing to share with me. If you get a chance, please visit the Jim Gatchell Museum in Buffalo, Wyoming. I'll link to them in the description. If you do go to visit Bomber Mountain, I think we all ask that you just please be respectful and not take anything. Hope you listen to the next show. Thanks. Thanks.